0: Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, live on SiriusXM channel 111 every weekday at noon East. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Happy Monday. Well, the South Carolina primary was Saturday night. Blink and you would have missed it. There wasn't a ton of coverage because the outcome was predicted and not that shocking. Former President Donald Trump won by 20 points over Nikki Haley in her home state not unexpected. Both sides claiming that they see some good news uh, for their respective favored candidate in there, believe it or not. And uh, we'll get to that and much more when the EJs join us in just a bit. But it's 2024 and a very unique presidential election year, which means the big news right now brings us back to Georgia and Fannie Willis, where there were breaking developments over the past two days since we left last left you on Friday. Uh, When we last spoke, I was in D.C. for CPAC and a stunning filing was submitted in this case. It was a filing by Team Trump alleging cell phone records uh, show that Fulton County D.A., Fannie Willis and her lover, Nathan Wade, lied to the court. When they claimed their affair didn't begin until 2022 after they started working together to prosecute Donald Trump. They did not have exactly a smoking gun, but it was about as close to that as you can get without having the actual thing. They had cell phone records showing him allegedly visiting her home 35 times in 2021, not 22, when they claimed they weren't lovers, 2000 phone calls, 1,800 text messages over the course of 11 months. And at least two what appear to be late night visits by Nathan Wade to Fannie Willis's house or to some location very near it um, at a time when they claimed the two had not been sleeping together. That brings us to today. Uh, since then, I should point out that Fannie Willis has responded to that motion. We'll get into it. And Team Trump has replied to her response. So they're fighting it out. And at this moment, we are getting ready for, or could be underway, um, Mr. Wade's one time. Business partner, well, law partner, friend, and one time divorce attorney, all the same man, Terrence Bradley, is expected to speak behind closed doors to Judge McAfee down in Georgia about whether he really does have a foundation to claim that all of his communications with Nathan Wade, really from the beginning of time, <laughs> from the beginning of time of Nathan Wade's first marital issues forward, should be considered attorney client privileged. And if they're not, They're going to be in some trouble uh, because we believe Terrence Bradley has some things to say that may put the lie to the story we've heard from Willis and Wade. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1 800 245 for a private, free consultation. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Megan. We start on all of that today with Phil Holloway. He's the founder of the Holloway Law Group based in Cobb County, Georgia. Phil, welcome back to the show. So let's start with what is or is not happening behind closed doors because we mentioned this on Friday. Nathan Wade is the holder of the attorney-client privilege that he had, at least for some time, with his one-time lawyer, Terrence Bradley. Um, And he has asserted the privilege and said it would be totally inappropriate for Judge McAfee to talk to his lawyer, even behind closed doors and chambers, about anything that was said between the two of them. So has the judge issued a ruling on that motion? And if he has, do we expect Bradley to actually appear in chambers and have the conversation or not?
2: Yeah, great to be with you again, as always, Megan. Listen, what's going to happen? It, I think it's at one thirty uh, Eastern time this afternoon is when this uh, in camera review is supposed to occur, uh, and all that means is, as you mentioned, it's just behind closed doors. It'll be the judge, Mr. Bradley, you know, his attorney, uh, and and the judge's questions. Okay, the judge, ironically, the law sometimes is quirky. The judge has to listen to the evidence and look at those text messages before he can actually decide if he's allowed to look at them. And and by that, I mean if he's if he's allowed to actually use them in making the decision in this case because he can't evaluate whether or not they are covered by attorney-client privilege unless he knows what they are and how the information was gathered. We talked about this the other day. Lawyers sometimes, when they represent their friends, their business partners, they might know things uh, that are outside the attorney-client relationship. If you pick up something when you're out having beers with your friends or at lunch or things like that, that's not necessarily covered by attorney-client privilege. So the judge has to has to look at this stuff and find out what is the source of this information, and, and then he can decide if it's covered by attorney-client privilege. But he's got to look at it before he can officially look at it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's coming this well, afternoon. Of
0: course, and and if let's say Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis went out to dinner or to drinks and they saw Terrence Bradley at the time. That's not privileged. Terrence Bradley can't assert privilege just because he happened to be the lawyer at the time. That would be information that he did obtain via his personal knowledge. Now he testified. He didn't get any info about their relationship from personal knowledge as opposed to via the attorney client relationship. But this judge clearly by the end of that last Friday hearing had doubts about that assertion. And that's what the judge is going to be looking to test in their private conversation today.
2: Yeah, and and this goes back, if you remember, a couple of filings ago, it's hard to keep it all straight. But uh, Ashley Merchant, who is the attorney uh, for Mr. Roman, the co-defendant in this case, she, when she first named Terrence Bradley, she said, "Look, Terrence Bradley is going to come to court. He's he's got this information that's not privileged that wasn't gathered in the in the scope of his uh, his representation of Mr. Wade." So she made those representations to the court, and we can infer from the testimony that we've seen that. That she has text messages. Okay, she has a conversation with Mr. Bradley. Mr. Bradley has has confirmed the existence of the text conversation. He has he has mentioned and talked in in court about some of the text some of the text messages. So between uh, what he has talked about and what has been been listed in the pleadings, we can infer that Bradley has talked about Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis and their relationship and when it began, and that it's not helpful to Willis and Wade. And so that's why we see the state fighting tooth and nail to keep this out. the um, The judge actually ruled; I think it was Thursday or Friday. Nathan Wade had filed a motion asking the judge, you know, not to even not to even question Mr. Bradley. But the judge said, "No, he's going to have to he's going to have to get into that." And so, the further, the longer this goes on, the the more the state fights to to keep this information out honestly, in my opinion, the worse it looks for them. Because if you remember, this is really about a conflict of interest and whether or not Fonnie Willis is making money off this, basically, okay? So the longer it goes on, the more Nathan Wade is paid by the hour. And by the way, prosecutors uh, never get paid by the hour. This is the first I've really ever seen of this, with a couple of small exceptions here in Georgia that were for much, much less per hour. It's like $45 an hour. But prosecutors don't get paid by the hour. The more they fight, the more they dig, the more the conflict of interest potentially becomes very real. And so that's why all of this matters. People are asking me, what about the guilt of the accused? What about those kind of things? Well, we're not there yet. This is about the fairness of the system. If you don't have a fair-minded prosecutor, one who comes into the investigation or the trial of the case without a conflict of, of interest, if you don't have that kind of fairness, fundamental fairness, you don't have due process. And without due yeah, process, you, you, you don't have you a can't system. Run
0: right to the trial. It, it, I refer people back to the Duke fake rape case back in 2005 and 2006, where there was a corrupt DA who didn't much care whether he had a alleged victim making up lies about the three Duke lacrosse players. What Mike Nifong wanted was to win re-election in a minority majority community, and his pension would go up if he won a re-election one more time. And he decided he had a winner. If he pushed this woman's allegations, even though they turned out to be B.S., he wound up getting disbarred. He wound up spending a day in jail. So what in that case, if we had followed the logic of the people coming to you now, we would just what about the guilt of the accused? Let's get right to the trial. Of these three accused guys No, if there's a corrupt D.A. prosecuting the case, you have to stop and make sure that corruption is addressed. It's ferreted out. People understand how bad it is, if it exists at all. And that's what's happening right now. To make sure there is not a corrupt DA pushing these charges against Trump and all the others, it's completely appropriate to do. And you know, it would be nice if they would be a little bit more cooperative about forking over information. Now that the the thing you said about Terrence Bradley brought me to a question: Terrence Bradley definitely texted with Ashley Merchant. There's no question. She she showed him a couple of the texts when he was on the stand. He seemed very uncomfortable. He was caught. I mean, I don't know why he texted with Ashley Merchant if he didn't want it coming out, right? But we saw the one where she forwarded him her whole motion to disqualify, saying the affair began back in, you know, way before 2022. And he said, looks good. Who could testify to the affair? And he said, no one's going to burn that bridge. And we appear to be looking at even more. Then he gets up on the stand against his objection, right? He tried to avoid it and said, everything is attorney-client privileged. All my knowledge about their relationship is covered in the attorney-client privilege, and I have no personal knowledge. Now, Phil, that either means that he violated the attorney-client privilege when he spoke to Ashley Merchant, or it means he lied on the stand to the judge. It's one of those two things. There's no other alternative. Am I wrong?
2: Well I think you're you're pretty much right on that and this is why he looks so uncomfortable I think you know um and and this is why he he he's really trying his hardest to to not have to go down and answer questions uh because he's really caught in a trap okay I mean and he's between a rock and a hard place on the one hand you know he's got to Think about his his own reputation and all this. He's got to think about whether or not Nathan Wade is going to make a bar complaint um, for violating attorney client privilege, if that's what he did. But remember, Ashley Merchant was very sure that the text messages and the things that he would testify to were not actually covered by attorney client privilege. So, you know, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place. He doesn't know if he, he needs put to himself accept there. that.
0: He yeah, he doesn't know. You, he needs to you and I both know as lawyers. If somebody texted you saying, "Phil, you know what about all that secret stuff your client told you," you would respond saying, <laughs> "I can't reveal that to you. It's covered by attorney-client privilege." Much as I'd love to share with you, go knock on somebody else's door. This guy gave mm-hmm. it up. He clearly gave it up to Ashley Merchant, and I'm going to give this man who I don't know the benefit of the doubt and say he did that because he did have personal knowledge. I mean, most attorneys absolutely know. You do not violate attorney-client privilege. Period. I mean, it's just grilled in you from the first day of law school. So, I believe that this guy would know not to do that. He probably gave it up because he did have personal knowledge. And then when he got, by the time he got on the stand, he was scared. On the stand, he was scared.
2: Yeah, this is a big case uh, obviously and this is the kind of thing where sometimes people may say things, they may do things, they may text things and not really think about how this may come out later but we all tell our clients, you know, you know, first thing you do is is don't talk. Okay, keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. And the reverse is also true as lawyers, the the less we talk about our our clients' cases, the better off we're going to be. And so um He's He is between that rock and a hard place. I hate to repeat myself, but I really don't know other, any other way to put it. Uh, I think that he wants to get in that room and get out as fast as he can. He's probably <laughs> hoping that the judge asks him as little as possible. Nevertheless, he's going to have to answer questions from the judge, and the judge is going to use – Whatever he learns today, the judge is going to use that, Megan, as a basis for determining what comes next, because as of right now, they're scheduled for closing arguments on this hearing on Friday. But uh, the Trump team, of course, is asking for the evidence to be reopened. I've got uh, sources who are telling me that other defendants may be weighing in on that because I think they're sharing the cell data. So we may see other filings. But we we don't know if Friday is going to be closing argument or if it's going to be more evidence. Uh, but in any event, the judge can't make that decision until after he hears from Bradley. And if he decides that these text messages are not covered by, you know, attorney client privilege. And by the way, there's a good argument that Nathan Wade has waived any attorney client privilege because his prosecution team said Ashley Merchant was a liar. They said she had no good faith basis for even going here with these things. And so she's, I think, entitled to to rebut that. And so, if the judge says no, this is this is something she can get into. We've got to reopen the evidence so that, that you know this can come out in open court and on the record. So there's so, so on much writing on, on today. that
0: point because there was you know this officer of the court, Ashley Merchant, had her integrity impugned. We all saw it by Fannie Willis by Nathan Wade, who said you lied, you lied about getting Terrence Bradley communications, and you claim that was the whole basis for this hearing that he had this information he was going to share about us being liars. Well, you're the liar. You're the liar, Fannie Willis said. So because of that, is this judge entitled to look at all the text messages? We heard Ashley Merchant say, I'll give you my phone. You can put it in evidence. I, I would even take the stand, which is extraordinary to have the lawyer become the witness. But she said, I would do it. So do we think that this judge, you and I haven't seen all the text messages, but do we think that Judge McAfee, or McAfee has seen them all or is about to in an hour and 15 minutes? Yeah,
2: I think he's about to, uh, if, if they've been submitted by Ms. Merchant or anybody else, I'm not aware of it. That's not been made public, but he's got to look at them. He can't consider what they mean unless he sees them and he learns about the entire context of all of this. And that's what this is about today. And, and, uh, I think my prediction is that uh, he's going to uh, allow these text messages into evidence. Now they might be uh, subject to some kind of protective order, so that they're not made public, but, uh, that's that's the other wrinkle here. We may not actually see them in this court case. We might see but them why? some other way. Can, can I say, let me
0: ask you a question though, Phil. Why would he seal them? Why can't I see them? Terrence Bradley sent them to Ashley Merchant. That's not privileged. Ashley Merchant can put them. She could leak them to any publication, including the megan Kelly Show. Today, there, there's is there some sort of protective order already in place that would prevent that? Because I heard her read from a couple aloud in court why can't she read from them all why why can't we know
2: well you remember the the filing that that blew this up with the the cell data the if you remember there was it's like 450 pages long but only like 12 pages are in the public record the rest of it is covered by this it's a standing protective order that shields uh you know confidential or sensitive information so i don't know i'm just predicting the judge could say that this is something that's you know, covered by his protective order. It's a standing order. Or he could say, no, it's all fair game. Ashley Merchant's not, you know, she's not anybody's, uh, she's not Nathan Wade's lawyer. She's not bound by any privilege. And, you know, she can do whatever she wants with it. Mm-hmm. So he could do that. And I, I personally think that one way or another, they're going to become, Part of the record in this case, I do think the judge is going to consider them. I hope they're made public in this hearing because the public has a right to see what's going on in this. This is so important to our national, uh, you know, collective interests and in, in having could you know, determine
0: a public the election discussion
2: about this election. Yeah, it so we've got to know because here's on. the
0: thing Look, think about this the judge is meeting with Terrence Bradley today. Terrence Bradley. Uh, OK, let's say he shows him all the texts. Ashley Merchant shows all the texts. And let's say the texts are much worse than we know. You know, he's going on. They're lying. They've been having the affair since 2019. I witnessed it. I, he asked me to lie for him. I'm, I'm going worst case scenario for Nathan Wade here. It's imaginary. We'll see. Um, now the judge sees this. But the judge says, OK, you know what? I can't consider it because it was covered by the attorney client privilege. Um, so I'm not able to technically and officially consider these. Then what do you do if you're Ashley Merchant or one of these defense lawyers, all of whom have seen it by now? They leak it. Someone's going to leak it. If he rules against them, someone's going to leak it. Trust me, I've been in the news business long enough to know that's what's that's what will happen. And then the judge looks terrible if the judge rules, you know, in favor of keeping Fannie and Nathan on this case. And then a report hits in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or wherever that there's extensive text messaging from Terrence Bradley saying they're liars. The affair began long ago, right? It's he, the judge can't put himself in that position. The r- laws of reality should prevent it.
2: Yeah, that's all true. And remember, he can rule in favor of Ashley Merchant and her client, Mr. Roman, based on the testimony of Miss Yurdy, right? We have people yeah. already who have come out on the record, uh, it, it, not just you know, televised. This is worldwide attention we're getting here. They've publicly said this affair started much earlier. Twenty nineteen is what you already said. The cell data is, as you mentioned, not okay, a smoking gun, but it's strong circumstantial evidence that there's a fraud being perpetrated on the court. And honestly, I think it's up. to The judge has to do something. If I'm the judge, I want to preserve the dignity and the sanctity of, of the process. Uh, I'm going to refer this out, if it were me, to some independent third party to investigate were they telling the truth or were they not telling the truth. I wouldn't necessarily leave it up to the litigation, the criminal litigation taking place in my courtroom. Somebody or some entity needs to get to the bottom of this and prove one way or another, are they lying or are they not lying? Because right now there's a pretty strong circumstantial and even direct evidence that they were lying.
0: So, Phil, in that scenario, what you're saying is the judge could say, I don't need to have a mini trial about this alleged affair and the alleged lies they've probably told here. I've seen enough to believe Yurty, Robin Yurty, and to disbelieve these two, and I'm bouncing them from this case. But there's a matter of ethics as an officer of the court. There's a matter of potential perjury if they lied under oath that I leave for someone else to look into. Is that that's an option for him?
2: Yes, it is. I think that uh, you know judges like to split the baby, so to speak, and and if they have an easier way to rule on something than than taking the hard way, they're going to take the easy way. Um, and I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes. I might not want to get into this whole can of worms. I might want to take the simple way out and say. I I disbelieve the testimony of Willis and Wade I accept the testimony of the surety the defense has made their you know threshold showing here and and demonstrated that there's uh um been some fraud being perpetrated on the court which by the way I think is in addition to any conflict of interest this is enough for him to bounce Willis off this case and, and, and then everybody who works for her is off the case. So yes, he's got an easy way he can get out of this and um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does. But um, if he wants to get out that way and, and not have to make the very difficult ruling, he certainly could do that.
0: Mm, which they never want to make the very difficult ruling, so we'll see whether <laughs> he's any different. Okay, so that leads us, you mentioned the cell phones. That's also what we talked about on Friday. And there now have been responses to the bombshell motion that Team Trump dropped on Friday with the cell phone records of prosecutor Nathan Wade. I mean an an extraordinary thing. One of the questions I asked you was, how do they get their hands on the prosecutor's cell phone records? And you said they issued a subpoena and you're allowed to do that. And sure enough, we now have Fannie Willis's response to the Trump motion saying a bunch of stuff. She says, it's too late. You know, we already kind of closed the hearing. You're too late. And by the way, you can't submit opinion testimony or expert testimony like this without meeting a couple of foundational things, like qualifying the guy as an expert, and you didn't do any of that. And um, they also say, this doesn't really prove what you think it proves. And they say, um, kind of what I was saying, which was, you may have gotten these illegally. You didn't, how'd you get, how'd you get these? They seemed surprised (laughs) that the defense had managed to get this too. And now we also have Trump's reply trying to address each of those points. So I'm, I know you've read the briefs. What do you make of where we are on these arguments? Yeah. Well,
2: I, I think that the the response that the state filed, I guess, later on Friday was, uh, a lot of it was ridiculous. Uh, we setting aside the, the you know, they, they tried to present Willis as, as having some kind of an alibi for the the sleepover dates that were claimed in September and November, and they attached uh, screenshots or PDFs of her calendar for dates in like April and May that had nothing to do with the dates in question. So putting that issue to the side, that one of the most ridiculous claims that they made was that the defense had no legal way of getting this. Well, uh, I said it, and I think you said it, others have said it, compulsory process means that lawyers get to subpoena witnesses and evidence in their favor. Um, And this is one of the biggest tools defense lawyers have to defend their clients and to get information. The cops in the investigative stage, they need a warrant. It's got to be supported by probable cause. That's Fourth Amendment. But we're now dealing with the Sixth Amendment. Now that you've brought criminal charges, the defense gets to investigate the case. And they get to present evidence that's favorable to them. Trump, in his footnote uh, on page two, he goes. His lawyer says the um, the records were obtained by a valid subpoena issued to AT and T, and they say that um, the the state's uh, claim in that response that it was somehow illegal is patently frivolous okay they said that it's and, and i agree it was kind of a frivolous argument to make um and it's not the kind of thing i would be expecting from professional prosecutors but the the trump motion the the most res, the recent response points out that this is not opinion testimony this is direct evidence it's what we call impeachment evidence and in the legal sense what that means is that you're basically attacking the credibility or the substance of what somebody has said in court, in this case, Wade and Willis have said that you know these um, overnight visits didn't happen. Well, this is this is meant to contradict their their testimony, and this is something that is also allowed by the rules of evidence. It's not that Charles Middlestat, the investigator, is coming to offer his opinion on things; he's coming to present the data. What is it that was collected? And he can offer a summary of it. So Trump is, I think, right on that point. He's right that the information was obtained legally. He's right on the point that uh, it means that there, there's strong circumstantial evidence that these uh, meetings, overnight meetings, uh, we talked about on Friday, the kitchen cabinet or whatever that means, You know, these things did occur, and this is – Uh, This is not conclusive evidence that they were necessarily um, having sex or anything like that. But what it is, it's circumstantial evidence that corroborates Yerdeh and it contradicts their direct testimony in court. So it goes to prove two things. It goes to prove that they possibly might be lying to the judge in this case, and it goes to, to show that the conflict of interest is real and that it began much earlier than Willis and Wade have said that it did. So mm. honestly, if, if I had to be keeping score right now, I would say the Trump team is clearly winning, at least in the, in the, um, the battle of the competing briefs here. But- um, the 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 arguments that were raised by the state uh, in objection to these records, I thought was um, was really not that great. And, and honestly, I, I agree with the characterization that some of the claims are frivolous and just outright ridiculous.
0: It was thin, the, to, to put it mildly. There were the two overnights, September eleventh, twenty twenty-one, which last I checked is earlier than two thousand twenty-two, <laughs> and then November 29th, thousand twenty-one. Those are the two nights. Submitted by Team Trump, showing that his cell phone appeared to have left his address and arrived near or at her address. The first one was from 10:45 p.m. leaving at 3:28 a.m. and then at 4:20 a.m. he texted Fannie Willis. I mean, my God, as you said, it's the got home safely text seems clear. And then November 21, 29 of 21, uh, he again left his area, his near his his residence at 11:32 p.m and arrived, and then returned back home after visiting her area at 4.55 a.m. On uh, neither of those two nights is any contradictory record, testimony, location information provided by Fannie Willis in her opposition. They, she submits some emails, all of which are redacted, heavily redacted, to show the cell phone records Team Trump submitted are wrong. They're not reliable. Since they're almost entirely redacted, I can't really tell for sure. But what they seem to be to me, Phil, tell me what you think, is a bunch of emails of Fanny Willis potentially saying, here, I'm at work, come meet me or meet me at the office at X time. And it appears to be a time at which Nathan Wade is shown at her home residence. I'm taking a guess. I don't understand how her emails on various dates having nothing to do with the two overnights yeah. can disprove Trump's case other than to perhaps if they prove positively that she was at the office when she sent them. And I do not believe they've they've submitted any such evidence. They've submitted emails from her work account. I can send that right now from Devil May Care Media. It doesn't mean I'm at corporate headquarters, right? Like, I'm not sure what she's trying to prove. But they don't address the two overnights at all. They don't, and they simply attach
2: those emails and the dates on the emails, at least the ones that I saw and that I remember seeing were not on the dates in question. One of them was in November, but it was a different day then the calendars we talked about were from April and May i think there was something from August but there was nothing that responded directly to the claim that the cell data was strong circumstantial proof that he was at the Yertie condo in Hapeville Georgia overnight on those two nights in uh, September and November the there was remember he Nathan Wade talked about in the hearing well you got the Porsche experience down there, which is, which is actually a great place, but it is down in Haightville near the Georgia, excuse me, near the Atlanta airport. But nobody ever claimed that he was actually at the Porsche experience, you know, at midnight or one o'clock in the morning, they, there was some suggestion in the States filing that this is uh, a generalized data location, which happens to put him also near bars and restaurants. There was no allegation. Nobody ever said he was actually at uh, any bar or restaurant or at the, any bar or restaurant was even open. At I was going to say, Phil, you're you're a
0: local. Are the bars open at five a.m., four a.m., and five a.m. In, in?
2: Well, I can't. This I can't. Area? I've been. I'm too old to know. Uh, that was <laughs> maybe an earlier time in my life. I would know. Even but in the, the point Yankee
0: is, states, the bars close at two. Most yeah. bars close at two. Down in well, the south, there's no way they're open at five a.m.
2: So here's the big thing about this these text messages, though. Okay, do you know if you noticed that? when the cell phone stopped moving right and it was down there near the yurtie condo and apparently also near bars and restaurants and all this the texting and the calling between wade and Willis stopped okay mm-hmm. and i think that's a right. big point that, you know if 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 that if he's texting and calling other people at 3 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning that might might weigh in favor of the Willis and Wade team, but the the calling and the texting apparently stopped until he left and resumed his travels back to his home in Cobb County, according to the the motions that we've seen I mean, in it's something else days. to do.
0: Okay, yeah. here's a here's a little color from um the state's response to Team Trump. They say these records do not prove in any way the content of the communications between Wade and Willis. They don't prove that Wade was ever at any particular location or address. I think Team Trump would concede that it's circumstantial that they believe he was at her house. They do not prove that Wade and Willis were ever in the same place during any of the times listed. And in fact, multiple relevant dates and times um, on on multiple relevant dates and times. Evidence clearly demonstrates that Willis was elsewhere, including at work. That's the blacked out emails. Um, Okay. now Team Trump responds by saying, all right. The prosecution will surely point out nobody knows what was happening in the house between midnight and three twenty eight a m on September twelfth or between midnight and five a m. on November thirtieth. Middlestat, that's their phone analyst, the guy who's doing the cell phone tower data, does not claim to know. Neither does President Trump or any other defendant in this case. Only two people know. They are certainly the ones who should testify and say exactly what was happening on those occasions, so nobody will complain about improper speculation or improper efforts to distort the truth, or nefarious contacts with the media. All we have heard from Wade and D.A. Willis so far has been that they did not have a romantic relationship until 2022. Yet it is highly significant that the state's response did not even attempt to challenge this phone evidence regarding those two dates. So they're, they're raising the same thing we're raising, Phil, which is in all those attached emails and even the response, and they didn't submit a new affidavit, there's been zero attempt to explain why his cell phone would be what appears to be at her house or right right, right near it uh, for two overnights, contrary to what they represented in the court. And you tell me whether there's any chance of this court reopening the evidentiary window for them to get into this more. Like, because Fannie Willis is trying to say you're too late in submitting this motion altogether. This, this, you didn't raise it. You had the records when we had our big hearing and you didn't submit it. So you can't do it now. And the other side saying, well, we're trying to impeach lies you told at that on that last day. So do you think there's a chance that this judge will exclude the cell phone evidence? And if if he allows it in, could we then have testimony from Fannie and Nathan on what happened those nights?
2: Yes, I think he's going to allow it in one way or another. He might allow it in as is and consider it based on the the uh, the, the summary, if you will, the affidavit that's been presented. But typically, affidavits are not uh, you know admissible. So uh, my my sense is he's going to reopen the evidence. He's going to allow some testimony. The fallback position is he's going to allow the data sort of to be presented through the briefs. Um, but I do think the judge is going to consider the cell phone data one way or the other. Uh, and so I, I doubt, Megan, that he's going to have Fannie Willis, you know, testifying again. I, I don't think he's going to quite go that far. But I do think there's a good chance, at least, that he might allow Middlestat to testify, be cross-examined by the state's attorneys and see where it goes from there. But uh, to the point that you were just making, this is not, I, I think, difficult to to. Basically, counter what the state's filing here. The Trump response yesterday. Is I, I would like to think that you and I are really, really smart lawyers and that, that we are the ones, to fit, but this is not, it doesn't take a smart lawyer. Anybody can figure this out. They didn't even contradict the allegations on those two dates that these two were in the same place. They simply raised the ridiculous, in my view, idea that this is some kind of unreliable evidence. This is the kind of evidence, Megan, that prosecutors rely on to arrest people, to charge them, and to convict them of like serious Lewis. crimes. Yeah, she does it. This is this is common use these days in uh, in criminal prosecutions. To, for them to come out and say that this is unreliable, it doesn't prove anything, it doesn't mean they were actually in the same residence, every person who's charged with a crime that in Fulton County right now where they're trying to use cell location data against them needs to quote Fonnie Willis's response to that when they get to court to try to have their case thrown out because it's disingenuous at best for prosecutors who use this all the time to say that it's not reliable and that it doesn't mean anything. This is not, you know, this it's not rocket science to pick apart the state's response from Friday, which I think was just really, really um, uh, far-fetched. And it was, was quite something to behold, to be honest with you. It's not the kind of thing that I would expect to have come out from a uh, major city professional prosecutor's kind of office in America. But no, this is where we are.
0: Same. I, I couldn't help shake the feeling, Phil, when I was reading it, that they had had a first-year associate draft this brief and in the interest of time just didn't review it. It was really, I mean, it was pretty bargain basement lawyering in that brief. I I would like to imagine they could do better because they're in charge of putting really bad guys in jail, not in this particular case, but in other cases. So you want top-notch lawyers working at the DA's office. I'm not sure they have it uh, down in Fulton County. Okay. More to follow as we get more information about what happens between the judge and Terrence Bradley today and all the other developments. They seem to come by the day down there. Phil, thank you.
2: Always happy to be here. Talk to you soon.
0: All right. Phil Holloway, everybody. Up next, the EJs and plenty of news to dissect with them. The Megan Kelly Show is supported by Grand Canyon University. Founded in 1949, GCU is a private Christian university that's dedicated to delivering an affordable and transformative higher education. Their vibrant campus is located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, and according to Niche.com, ranked a top 25 best campus in the USA. As of June 2023, GCU offers 330 academic programs, with over 270 of them online, allowing you the freedom to earn your degree on your time from wherever you are. At GCU, your degree, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate, integrates the free market system and a welcoming Christian worldview. Learn more about GCU's programs, competitive tuition rates, and scholarship offers from your university counselor. They're part of the supportive graduation team that takes a personalized approach to helping you achieve your academic goals, walking alongside you every step of the way. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable more info or to enroll, visit gcu.edu. Joining us now to break down the biggest political and cultural headlines today, the EJs. Emily Jashinsky is culture editor at The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour, and Eliana Johnson, editor-in-chief at The Washington Free Beacon and co-host of the Ink Stained Wretches podcast. Ladies, welcome back. Hey, Megan. Hi, Megan. Great to see you. All right. So just because we just left off on it, can you believe what's happening in the Fannie Willis case down in Georgia? I mean, can you believe that case may be imploding because of an affair between the top two prosecutors who may or may not have lied under oath to a judge, potentially in more than one setting in the case of Nathan Wade, and that Trump could potentially be saved by all of this nonsense and shenanigans that have been going on? Emily, I'll start with you on that because you have the most bemused look on your face.
1: (laughs) I really, I I honest to goodness cannot believe it. We were talking to the producer before going on air and it was like, this is Real Housewives level drama, the audacity. that has been on display down in Fulton County is incredible. And what is even less believable is that Fannie Willis, as you've discussed, is like on tape talking about how she was going to crack down on corruption and nobody would be sleeping with other people in the DA's office (laughs) is like completely insane. And on top of that, the left has been going after Trump on the basis of like very real character accusations. For a long time, you know, this guy, he was bragging in the tabloids about his affairs and he's just not fit for office. And then this woman that they championed in the press, I mean, really went out of their way to cast as a hero to Trump's villain uh, is winding up in exactly the same situation after sort of months of sanctimonious and smug coverage of her effort to take down Trump. Which is basically having an affair and lying about it. And then the lie
0: is being told to protect yourself politically. That's what Trump is accused of doing in the Stormy Daniels case. That's what she's accused of doing here. By the way, I mean, you tell me, what reason would a man have to go over to a woman's house from 12 a.m. and then leave at 5 a.m. if the affair could otherwise be open and notorious? He was still married. That's like, I realized that, you know, ultimately he filed for divorce and he testified that the marriage was kind of emotionally over before whatever he was still married. And to me, it's pretty obvious that this was during 2021 before he had filed for divorce in at least one of the cases. And it looks like a man sneaking back into his house. Maybe the wife was in another room. I don't know. But there's no other reason Um, that I can think of for a man to be sneaking out of the alleged affair partner's house at three in the morning or five in the morning. Any thoughts on that, Eliana? A couple of thoughts on the whole thing. The first is
3: um, all of this has been absolutely gripping to follow. Watching Fannie Willis' testimony was totally gripping. Watching Wade's testimony was totally gripping. So just as a news consumer, it's been so interesting. But beyond that, um, there really is something to the fact that Donald Trump has extraordinary luck. And I think part of his political ability is the fact that The people who pursue him so doggedly tend to take on his characteristics. And you mentioned that before, you know, he's being accused of having an affair, paying people off, lying about it and so on. And we're seeing now that his pursuers are engaged in the same behavior, although there are more unethical uh, strands in Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade. But what really struck me um, in watching Willis's testimony was that This is just not she doesn't not come across as as a super competent person. She's I don't think that formidable of an opponent. And and Trump is lucky in this case in his uh, in his opponent.
0: Yeah, you're I completely agree. And I also think there's some risk if you hire a broke D.A. There's risk. They hired a broke D.A. down there in Fulton County by her own testimony she had sunk fifty thousand dollars of her own money, and she didn't have it to give. She she borrowed it out of her. It was her. Was it her four hundred and one k to fund a previous campaign that failed, where she was trying to run for judge, and right after that she ran for DA, and she got it. And this is part of Trump's story in this case that she didn't have any money, that she was sleeping with Nathan Wade, and that she brought him on. paid him much more than the other two prosecutors she brought on. And then they went all over the world together on these lavish vacations, which she swears she paid half for in cash, all cash that she had sitting in big piles in her apartment, notwithstanding the $5,000 lien that was against her for not for unpaid bills. I mean, Emily, it's farcical. It's obvious to anybody with fresh eyes that this is a lie by somebody who's in a panic now after having made some very bad choices.
1: Yeah, they're they're not doing a particularly good job of covering up for the lie either. And I mean, at one point there was testimony that not under you know d- d- having suspicions about these stacks of cash that just must have had to have been sitting around Fannie Willis's house in order to pay uh, these obscene bills all in cash to split it. Uh, that's just a difference between you know people in the white community and people in the black community. I mean, these are things that are actually being testified to in court. Yes, so her it's dad said just. It. It's a circus. It's a complete circus. And and it sounds like when you didn't do your book report in fifth grade and you said, I absolutely turned that in. I know I put it on your desk to the teacher. And then you start building these like layers of falsehoods around it and you're stretching and just engage in these mental gymnastics to stand by your story to the point where even you start to believe that you did put that book report on your teacher's desk. That's what Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis sound like in court. It's an embarrassment. And it's also, again, to Eliana's point, tend to take on the characteristics, like Trump's opponents tend to take on his characteristics. Well, it's that. And I think it's also that uh, he it, it proves his point about rampant corruption in the political system in America. And, and Willis is really getting a lot of uh, she's gotten some tough media coverage, but she's also gotten a disproportionate level, uh, I think, of good faith from the media. She had a lot of positive coverage going into all of this. Uh, and so it just uh, they continue to prove his point about the political system, too.
0: They needed somebody like my big sister, God rest her who back when I was a kid in high school and getting in all sorts of trouble with my best friend, Kelly McGinnis, it was Megan Kelly and Kelly McGinnis. We were (laughs) so fun and a hot mess together. And we had a party at my parents' house when they weren't there. There may or may not have been a couple of Bartles and James wine coolers. We took pictures. We had them developed. (laughs) This is back in the day for our young listeners when you actually did that at Kodak. And then we left the pictures on the kitchen counter and went to visit my sister at college with all the evidence of our bad doings on the kitchen counter for my parents' return. Well, they found the pictures. They (laughs) called my sister, you know, who we were visiting at college. And I said to my sister, what did mom say? What'd she say? And she said, she said, you have no life left. Whereupon Kelly and I went into a panic because our social life was about to be ruined. And Kelly said, do you think we could tell them that we were just posing for some funny pictures with the barrel and just funny pictures? And I was like, maybe we. And my sister, of course, looked at us and said, you two are a couple of dumbasses. They will never believe that nonsense. They needed someone like Suzanne Kelly to say no one's going to believe your cash lie <laughs> or that you weren't having an affair when there's thousands of texts and phone calls, when there are overnight visits, everything gets found out. You just can't lie anymore in 2024 America. It'll be found out, Eliana. Well, I think the cell
3: phone um, the cell phone pings and the cell phone records really uh, are bearing that out. Um, you can't be somewhere without people being able to find out the proximity of where you were. You can't text somebody without being able to pull the records. We just live in too online a society now to be able to hide the way you once might have been able to. Um, And it's, it's dangerous to try to lie your way out of something for exactly that reason.
1: But you can't. Yeah. I mean, Joy Reid is still employed by NBC News and lied like <laughs> in the exact same way with the same level. Well, we of all
3: know the answer. truth, Emily. We all know the truth.
1: We do. But she kept her job and continues yeah. to be treated as a serious journalist in like elite circles. So I mean, you can't. But you also can in certain circumstances if you if you happen to fit into uh, the the you know right side of any given issue. Donna
0: Brazil got yes. hired. By Fox, and then she's she back at CNN now. After cheating, where MSNBC, Steve, ABC, because Steve Krakar's telling me, yeah, ABC. So she got hired by Fox and ABC after she was caught, denied, and ultimately was forced to admit cheating on a presidential debate, taking the question she had because of her access to CNN and giving them to Hillary Clinton. I mean, to Emily, is there a better? So you've got her. You got Fanny. You got Joy. Like, there's just a different set
1: of rules here. They did exactly what you thought about doing, Megan. First Donna in Brazil was like, I could have been Russia. And Joy Green <laughs> was like, I was hacked. <laughs> they really tried. She was like, I don't know where this came from. Like, this must have been a hacker who went into my website all the way back then, made changes that nobody saw. I mean, again, this is coming from a journalist, somebody whose priority is supposed to be truth. Uh, and Donna Brazile genuinely went and and said, could have been, could have been Russia. We don't know. There yeah. could have been tampering and had p- other Never people know. saying the same thing. It was incredible. Yes. And yeah, they got away with it. And
0: then when I confronted Donna Brazile right before that presidential debate at the time, she said, you're persecuting me.
1: As a Christian woman, I understand persecution, but I will not sit here and be persecuted.
0: So we'll see. I don't think Fannie Willis. One of my joys in watching this case, and I know a lot of people believe the judge is going to keep them on the case, and that, that could happen. I have to tell you, so far, I trust this judge. I do. I, he, is, he was a member of the Federalist Society when he was in law school. He is, I think, a registered Republican He is not some far-left guy. Now, he did work for a time for Fannie Willis, and he made a small donation to her campaign, but so did everyone. I think even Phil Holloway said he did. Like, it's one of those things where you can see she's about to win. Everybody's like, oh, here's $50 from me. So you're on, you know, you have a good relation. That that happens all the time. Trump testified to that when he was um, running for office the first time. But so far, I trust the judge. But one of the things I'm loving about watching the case is liars have a difficult time When they're in the legal system and they're under oath and there are real consequences to lying and there are real tools to prove a lie. There's something very satisfying about it, Eliana. You know, just to watch like the evidence come out, like we found your phone records. We have your friend under oath. Only one of you has a major motive to lie. You know, there's, I don't know. Are you having the feeling?
3: Watching her wriggle, even answering questions about why she had. Stacks of cash in her house, and then oh, but you didn't use them to pay off your forty-six hundred dollar tax lien. You used them to uh, fly to Barbados or wherever that you know wherever she was going. You went to Napa. You paid cash for that. She didn't pay off your tax lien. I mean, there there is a real uh genuine
0: pleasure in in watching them wriggle. And the response to that was, oh, now you're going to tell me how to pay my bills, right? Yeah, whereas a truth teller would have said. I know it wasn't the most responsible thing, but you know, that's what I did. A lot of people can relate. That's what a truth teller sounds like when you attack the question or the questioner odds are you're lying. Those are the odds I'm telling you go back to Phil Houston, the human lie detector. He will walk you through it by his books, by the lie. All right. The EJs stay with us for the rest of the show. There's a lot more to get to. We haven't even touched on South Carolina, the results there, both sides finding some good news. And by that, I mean, Trump's team and Nikki Haley, who's saying, she's staying in it. Um, And yet a major donor just abandoned her. Stay tuned for that update. And don't forget to follow us at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly. If you want to get the video of the show, we'd love to see you over there. Stand by. Debt. Stressful just to think about it. You go to bed thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. Here's the truth. The system traps you in debt. High interest credit cards and loans make it nearly impossible to pay off your debt. And insane inflation keeps you stuck paycheck to paycheck. Done With Debt can be your lifeline. Done With Debt has an ingenious new strategy to help erase your debt faster and easier than you ever thought possible. Done With Debt analyzes all the debt options you qualify for. They know how to reduce bills. They know how to cut interest rates. They're a skilled staff of negotiators. They know how to get debt out of your life permanently without bankruptcy and without a loan. Done With Debt These guys are experts in strategies for eliminating debt, but you need to hurry because some debt solutions are time sensitive. Here's how easy they make it. Go to donewithdebt.com. That's donewithdebt.com. Donewithdebt.com. Okay. Before we get to South Carolina, this just breaking, Trump has filed his notice of appeal, not the actual appellate brief, but his notice of appeal in the $355 million judgment against him. In that Judge Engeron civil corporate fraud case brought against the Trump organization, that's the smiling judge who was loving his moment in the spotlight. And um, this case is getting very weird, even weirder than it was, because as soon as they entered the 355 million, they slapped on interest, pre-judgment interest, and it went up to like 450 million dollars that Trump owes um, this court. Well you know, the state, the state of New York and, um, Letitia James, the attorney general of New York state who ran for office on a promise to get Trump. I mean, we've played the butted sound bites of her saying it over and over and over again, has been tweeting out on X the number that he owes each day. Like we had one the other day, um, 460. No, it's hard to get my arms around the number these are millions, 464,576,230.62. Let's just round it and call it 465 million. And she tweets out plus 114,000. Because each day, in addition to the 100 million, 110 million he had to pay in pre judgment interest, it continues to accrue interest on it that he owes for every day until he pays it or gets it reversed by an appellate court. And this woman who actually, I guess, wants us to believe she's a nonpartisan law enforcement official. She is the top law enforcement official in New York state every day, not only tweets out plus 114,000, she tweets it on her attorney general account. And then she retweets herself on a her personal account. She's she's so in love with her tweets. She's really proud of herself. That she she's come up with this clever way to show us what the running tally is. She's retweeting it everywhere. She's doing it every day. And I will say, you have guys like Tom Elliott, who I follow on X, responding as follows. You're doing well turning Trump critics like me into Trump defenders. Like This feels pretty ghoulish as he's trying to appeal this outrageous judgment against him that even his critics can see is made up. No one was hurt. And look at her swagger in celebrating it. Emily, your reaction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty gross, especially because that money is set to go basically into the New York Treasury. Uh, it's not going to victims. So it, because, of of course, there were no victims. In fact, the people who were supposed to be victims testified that they were really glad to have Donald Trump as a client during this trial. So uh, it, it would be one thing if she was celebrating the money going to people who, who really, truly deserved it. But in fact, what she's celebrating uh, is this hyper-partisan takedown of a main pe- presidential candidate in a way that. Uh, even the Associated Press, uh, their excellent analysis of how this law has been prosecuted, that that Trump is accused of having was found to have broken, uh, how it has been applied in the the past and found, you know, the Associated Press, no friend of Donald Trump found that this was an unprecedented application of it. So this is what's being celebrated uh, by Letitia James. It's not especially surprising on someone who basically ran on a Get Trump platform, uh, but it is really gross because I think to a lot of people, it just puts the sinking feeling in their stomach. About our lurch towards banana republic uh, status, and you know, it's it's not just Letitia James. Obviously, I think Judge Chutkin has problems. Judge Engeron has problems in in making the whole effort to take down Donald Trump look partisan and look like uh, it'd be more fit for a trial in a banana republic. Uh, she's not doing you know the country any favors by by celebrating this again. It's not money that's going to victims uh, because she chose to prosecute a case where they're actually by their own admission were no victims. And it's just ghoulish is a great word for it, Megan.
0: Prosecutors are supposed to be committed to justice, Eliana. That's not getting a conviction, not sticking it to the man, certainly not sticking it to a political opponent, but to justice. And they're certainly not supposed to be licking their lips as the 114,000 gets added to the judgment every day with just a little bit of Trump blood dripping from the mouth. I mean, that's what she's trying to show us here. Meanwhile, look what he's facing. This is just a couple of, uh, these are a couple of points via CNBC of the position he's in right now. He files this notice of appeal, so he will be appealing, which we knew. He's appealing the money judgment and also the substance of the decision, saying the judge committed errors of law and or fact abused its discretion and or acted in excess of its jurisdiction. Um, The notice does not indicate that Trump has secured the bond needed to appeal this massive judgment. And that normally, if you get a big judgment like this against you, you do have to show the court, I have a bond that will allow me to pay it. So I'm not appealing just to delay paying the money I owe you. And that's why the courts in all cases would require a, a defendant like this in a case like this to post a bond showing I've got the money, um, but I, I have legal rights to play out. He has not secured the appeal appellate bond from the sound of it yet, or at least he didn't notice that um, appeal bonds typically up to 120 percent of the judgment plus the current interest. At that rate, reports CNBC, Trump's original ruling with interest would indicate he will need to secure a bond worth more than 540000000 million. I'm like, I actually just like had to swallow just saying that number. Well, like $540 million. <clears throat> I think he testified at trial he's got about $400 million cash available to him. He's got assets. He's got Trump Tower. He's got other buildings. But I mean, this is, this is massive. This truly is a bet your business situation for Donald Trump. And it's this is before we've had one criminal trial even begin, Eliana.
3: You know, Megan, you said that if you're Tish James, you um, you wouldn't want people to think that you're a partisan hack just going after um, Donald Trump. But I think what we see in, in Tish James and, and Alvin Bragg is that they're Incentives are are sort of different. They're responding to um, the folks that elected them in New York State, and it seems that they want precisely the opposite. They want to be seen as um, attack dogs against Donald Trump, pulling any um, new lever, however novel, um, in the legal system to get Donald Trump. Um, They know uh, that their mission has been clearly identified, and while it's bad for the country, It's they clearly think it's good for their political careers. And it's true, um, this was an unprecedented application of the law. You are seeing um, Trump critics Turn Trump defenders because um, this sets a precedent that's dangerous for companies in New York. There are plenty of businessmen in New York who oppose Donald Trump who are now fearful of um, the legal repercussions of a political enemy coming after them uh, using this law. There may not have been any victims, but they're on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars um, for a Inflating a value here. Somebody argues they inflated a value here, inflated a value there. Um, It's dangerous and bad for the country that they are demonstrating that the legal system can be used to go after uh, a political enemy like this. And I think Trump is rightfully appealing this
0: uh, novel verdict. The Trump campaign legally is not allowed to use campaign money to fund this verdict, um, or I think his legal fees either. Um, I think the super PAC can pay the legal fees. I got to go back and look at this, to be honest with you, but I know they can't use it to pay this verdict. Um, Private donors could pay it for him. There was a GoFundMe begun by our friend, Eliana Cardone, Uh, Elena, I should say, I'm looking at you, Eliana, Elena Cardone, wife of Grant Cardone. And um, it's got like a, I don't know, 1.4 million. I mean, these good people have donated their own money to try to help the guy. It's sweet, but it's, it's a drop in the bucket. I mean, you know, it's going to be 550 million. You know, that's just, I just don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, Trump has the ability to pull a rabbit out of a hat like no one else, but this one, it disturbs me and I'm sure it's really disturbing them. This is again, before he's got one real dollar in legal fees of actual trials in the criminal lane. Okay. Notwithstanding all that. that, I would just add to that,
3: Megan. Um, when he's raising money for his campaign, he can't quite say it out loud, but what he's essentially saying is, "Please fund my legal defense," because that's where really where. The, his big campaign dollars through the super PAC are going to the RNC has been paying his legal bills, um, but reporting this weekend suggested that there's a movement afoot in the RNC to say we don't want to pay his legal bills anymore. We don't want the money to go there. And so it's possible he could have trouble on this horizon going forward. I don't know, um, you know. Republican donors are certainly going to want him to win the election. So they may keep the money flowing. But it's not quite as compelling a pitch as, hey, we want to put $20 million behind this ad buy to attack Joe Biden. It's just um, it, it's it's
1: not as easy a sell for them, which is why mm. he's fomenting a takeover. Of and the and that's why.
3: Right. So, he, yeah. you know, he's got his folks going into the RNC to take it over. And he's lagging Joe Biden in fundraising hugely, hugely right mm. now. And I think this is a major reason why.
0: I mean, he was he was lagging Hillary Clinton, too, and he beat her. So, you know, the, all hope is not lost for Republicans who want Donald Trump. But it, you, you'd rather have the other situation where you didn't have four criminal trials and this huge silver totally. verdict and the donations could be used for ads and rallies and get out the vote efforts.
3: Right. The money is not dispositive um, at, at all, but um, but you'd rather have the money on your side than not. I hate
1: yeah. when always uses right. words like dispositive. She's a super smart lady.
0: Okay, (laughs) but did not start a GoFundMe for Donald Trump. That was that was somebody else. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Donald Trump electorally is having very good news, though it depends on who you ask. I'm actually genuinely interested to hear your take on this. So he won South Carolina as expected, but he won it by 20 points. Call it 60-40. He got 59.8. Haley got 39.5. Um, Donald Trump came out and said, I've never seen the Republican party. So unified that's of course, you know, that's an intentional word. Cause he wants to forget. It's basically like Haley, you're failing. You did, you know, we unified despite you, but it's not totally unified, right? You still got 40% of South Carolinians, Republicans, that is voting for someone other than Trump. So I can see why the non-Trump Republicans Are feeling okay. They're feeling kind of good about that, even though they lost, even though Haley lost, and changed her messaging from I'm staying in it to the end to I'm definitely staying in it through like Super Tuesday, I think she said, which is a little different. The Koch brothers pulled their money. That's bad for her. That was a big deep pocket that was making it possible for her to stay in this race. And really, as you know, Emily, they don't ever get out because they want to get out. They get out because they run out of money and without the Coke money and, you know, they won't be the only donors to start pulling. She really isn't going to have much of a runway left. But what does it tell us, do you think, that still at this late stage in a a state in which roughly eight in 10 voters in this GOP primary describe themselves as conservatives, Trump only got 60 percent?
1: Yeah, I do think that's interesting. Another thing I think is interesting is the spending discrepancies. And this is partially because Trump, frankly, doesn't have a lot of money right now, but she is wildly outspending him. Actually, Nikki Haley in Iowa spent more than Trump and DeSantis. She spent Way more than anyone else in new hampshire and and now to come at forty percent in second place, she dramatically outspent Donald Trump, especially since New Hampshire, where she sort of put this benchmark that I have to do better here so uh, I think it's interesting that in her home state with a huge spending example or a huge spending advantage, she came at forty percent, but she also then came out on stage and said 40% is not a tiny number. And, and there is truth to that, that where a lot of money pours in, you're still getting some 40% of people being like, eh. In her most powerful argument is that when you look at some national polls, people are not happy about the Trump-Biden matchup. Um, but primary voters, on the other hand, are continuing to push on us the Trump-Biden matchup because primary mm-hmm. voters tend to be more hyper-partisan than a lot of the sort of independents uh, and people who are not super politically active, uh, but are you know interested in who the president is. Maybe not enough to vote. Maybe they don't want to vote because they don't like either of their options. It's a huge lane for RFK Jr., obviously. Um, and we're going to see more of that in the months to come. I think that's probably the least discussed major story of this election cycle right now. And that's a big Nikki Haley argument. She made the argument over and over, put a lot of money behind it. She's doing the whole. She's she's using the grumpy old men line a lot now. That you know Americans don't want this, and she's right. the The problem really is, though. You know, in the Republican primary nationally, she's actually pulling at seventeen percent. Uh, Trump has huge numbers in the real clear politics average nationally, so she can pour a lot of money. Yeah, into South Carolina state. is her home state. Right. 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 So, I mean, so she, she hasn't been getting mm, a bigger number there. Right. Uh, and the she did is, really so well look at, in New Hampshire. If you look at the
0: numbers, um, that sort of behind the numbers, Eliana. Um, Trump had more than 80% of the voters who described themselves as very conservative. Uh, He had a majority, but a smaller one, of those who called themselves somewhat conservative. Haley went over the small contingent of moderates. This is uh, per CNN. Voters who are college grads, normally you expect Haley to run away with those. That's how it's been so far. They were divided. They were closely divided between Trump and Haley. But three quarters of those without a college degree and that's the majority of the South Carolina electorate, GOP electorate, supported Trump. If you look nationwide, I don't, we just saw the, the latest data on college grads. It was like high 30s, like 37, 35 percent are college grads, and um, the rest aren't. So you'd rather have the non-college grads on your side than the college grads on your side. That's That bodes well for Republicans coming in the general electorate, either way, because the Democrats have become the party of the so-called elites and the college grads and the postgraduate degrees and all that. But it is just sort of interesting to hear, you know, how it's split. Only four in 10 in South Carolina described themselves as affiliated with the MAGA movement. Four in 10, 45% said yes. 49% in South Carolina said no. And last but not least... About 36 percent of South Carolina GOP primary voters said they would consider Trump unfit if he were convicted of a crime. So what's your takeaway from all those results?
3: They do mirror more or less what we've been seeing in the rest of the country, which is that Trump does extremely well with those who decide define themselves as very conservative. And there's a reason in presidential primaries um, that People have coined the term "pivoting to the general," where it's you lock down the conservative or the left-wing base, and then you sort of moderate when you get into the general election to try to win over moderates. Um, Haley has kind of taken the opposite tack, where she's locked down the moderates, um, but she's not really pivoted to try to get these conservative voters that she's unable to get. So Trump, he does really well with the very conservative voters, um, the non the non college educated. and he struggles more with the college-educated and moderate voters, Um, that's fine. So far as the primary goes, he's got no problem. He'll have no problem getting through this primary. He's a clear choice of Republican voters. But it is going to matter in the general election where he doesn't need to win these people, but he needs to lose them by less than than Republicans have been losing them in the past three election cycles where they've lost them by wide margins. And he's got to close that gap and make sure that his rhetoric isn't alienating Um College grads more than it needs to, particularly female college graduates. There's a real gender mm-hmm. divide there. And the other thing I would say is, you know, people have been asking, why is Nikki Haley in this? Why does she keep running? Um, she really wants to drive home the point that 40% of the party is not with Donald Trump, 30% in some states, 40% in other states, uh, and that. Despite what he says, that he's united the party, he actually has not. And the Republican Party very much remains a party divided, which you can see it on Capitol Hill every single day of the week. Uh, the party is very much divided, and this primary is exposing it. Haley, I mean, she'll be in this until she runs out of money. And, of course, the Kochs pulling their money suggests that maybe sooner rather than later. But but she is running to make this
0: point. The, we, we went back just to take a peek of where Trump was in February of 2016 with the party. And um, three polls from mid-February 2016, he had between 35 and 49% of the GOP. Now, he had not yet been president. You would expect a former president to perhaps have more support. But Trump's a divisive figure. January 6th didn't help with anybody who's not hardcore MAGA. Right? there's still a lot of bitterness and anger over that, even amongst Republicans. Um, and so here he sits now with 60 percent of the party in South Carolina, and, you know, not he hasn't completely unified it. But in 16, and probably this time, the party came home in the end, just given a binary choice, and I realize you're going to have RFKJ and possibly even Nikki Haley on a, on a ticket with no labels given a binary choice they, they came home for the Republican. They held their noses, even the ones who didn't like them. And they voted for Donald Trump because it's, you know, it's him or Biden and they hate Biden more than they hate Trump. And I think there's probably every reason to believe they'll do that again. Now in what numbers, what kind of enthusiasm that remains to be seen. All right, let me flip the page and get to this big story out of Atlanta, which is just horrifying, horrifying. Um, it's not Atlanta. It's um, hold on. It's Augusta, Augusta university college of nursing. Uh, I'm sure many in the audience have heard this story. I'm sure you gals have heard this story too. A young woman, 22 years old, named Laken Riley, was at the university, uh, the nursing school down there in Augusta. And she was killed by an illegal immigrant uh, this weekend on Thursday. She was found dead after going out for a jog in a wooded area of the University of Georgia campus in Athens, Georgia. This was. Uh, They began searching for her. Around twelve zero seven p.m., after they received a call from a concerned friend, who said she hadn't come home from her run. Within thirty minutes, they found her body, visible injuries, no pulse, and um, it's you know they they classified it now as a homicide. There's no doubt about what happened to her. The perpetrator is alleged to be twenty six year old Jose Antonio Ibarra, who has got a long history with ICE. Look at this guy. The latest statement issued by ICE on Sunday describes him as follows. A 26-year-old citizen of Venezuela arrested by custom and border protection on September 8th, this is a couple years ago, 2022, after unlawfully entering the United States near El Paso. He was paroled and released for further processing, which we all know never happens. Further processing doesn't happen. They have a free ticket to roam the United States. On September 14th, 2023, Ibarra was arrested by the NYPD and charged with acting in a manner to injure a child less than 17. We now know that that was allegedly him putting his wife's son on the back of a gas-powered moped without any helmet or restraint. That's via the Daily Mail and New York Post. Um, And with some motor vehicle license violations. He was released by the NYPD before a detainer could be issued by ICE. Not that it would have mattered because New York is a sanctuary city, And they would not have complied with any ICE detainer. So whatever. Flash forward to February 23rd, this past Thursday, Atlanta encountered Ibera, pursuant to his arrest by the University of Georgia police. He's been charged with murder and other crimes. And the question is, what was he doing here? How many more Americans need to die before someone will take the border situation seriously? Emily,
1: more Americans will die. Sadly, um, you know, just last year, tens of thousands of migrants with criminal records were deported, and that's just a number. I think it's thirty-five thousand around there. That's just a number of people who who were deported. And now we know this suspect was not among them because he had a criminal record and he was here. So, if you're looking at the numbers of people who actually go through the deportation process, first of all, a lot of them come back, but second of all, uh, there are plenty of people that are not caught. And it's outrageous. And no other country would tolerate the amount of people who are not vetted who are admitted to the interior of the country through our process? A lot of these people are not illegally crossing. They are now coming legally because they make appointments through CBP1 or because they go to a sector that is, uh, you know, they wait on a border town and then they wait for, you know, the quota to be one of the people in the quotas. I mean, I've watched people at migrant shelters uh, scroll through their phones. Uh, with their messages on WhatsApp from CBP, just of the totally arbitrary numbers of people that are allowed to come in on any given day. it's incredible that this is you know the most powerful, wealthiest country in the world allowing lack of security no other country again would tolerate it but we have these luxury debates in elite media about whether biden's border is technically open or not when if you're in georgia uh or california you could go back to katie steinley you can go back to other of these instances uh this is happening in the interior of the country it doesn't matter by the way murdered in san francisco by an illegal who had been deported at least five
0: times, at least five Sanctuary times. City. Keep going. Yep. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it, it, you, you sometimes hear people in beltway circles say, well, why do people in North Dakota care about the border? Why do people in Missouri care about the border? And it's like, well, what do you mean? People are going everywhere. They're spreading out throughout the United States and we don't have a serious asylum system. And people who have legitimate asylum claims, this is another tragedy of this. People who have legitimate asylum claims are getting mixed up in all of this. Uh, and, you know, America as a beacon of, of, opportunity and freedom for people who are being legitimately persecuted in places like Venezuela and places like Cuba. Uh, there are just so many people coming through now that it, the entire system is completely broken and Americans are suffering, let alone the migrants who every single one of them is a, a trafficking victim, paying the cartels, making the cartels more powerful with every single person that is coming up through the Darien Gap into Central America, into Mexico, and then across our border. Every single migrant is making them richer and more powerful. Uh, so there's just uh, suffering to go around, and the people who are you know engaged in these luxury debates and Beltway circles about whether uh, you know the Biden the the Biden border is open or not it, it's outrageous. They should go talk to the families of people who are being affected by this. People who are being murdered. Uh, it, they don't have time for these debates. You know, Eliana, it feels it feels scary. It feels
0: like who's next? Who's going to be the next to go? Because we've got what 8.5 millions of these illegals in the country over the past couple of years. We have no idea where they are. We don't keep tracks, keep track of them. And this guy, while he had a bad history, they're, they're far worse. There are illegals out there right now who have committed felonies who are still allowed to stay and haven't been turned over to ICE. We've seen it time and time again. Um, this guy, they were probably saying, oh, you know, he came here illegally. And then there was this moped violation with a kid, but it wasn't enough for them to actually take interest in him. And then the next thing you know, a 22-year-old American girl who was about to devote her life to taking care of others, the sick, the vulnerable, is dead for no reason. In the middle of the day, just trying to work on her physical fitness and health for no reason. And what American parents are going to get the next notification that their child, who did nothing wrong and was only intent on having a helpful, loving life here in the United States, is dead because we wouldn't pay attention to this. This
3: crisis, you know, from traveling and covering political candidates, political races um, in the West, in the East, North, South. I can tell you, people say, immigration is not a border issue. This is a 50 state issue now. And the thing that's maddening about this uh, tragedy is that this is a policy choice. Uh, Joe Biden came into office and on his first day, um, set about reversing the hawkish Trump immigration policies, um, illegal border encounters and crossings began to skyrocket. Um, only now, three years into his tenure, is he reverting to some of the Trump era policies that he decried as inhuman. Um, speaking of inhuman, it's you know the the murder of an innocent American by an illegal immigrant, and then the way this is covered in the press is oh. you know, the danger of uh, being a female athlete going out for a run by yourself and nary a mention of the fact that this uh, murderer wasn't even supposed to be in the country. But I I do hope everyone remembers that these are policy choices and we're seeing the impact of those choices. Um, the, they, they actually are life and death, death choices
0: for these victims. Right. I mean, I think about these parents over and over. I'm sure that they've been watching <clears throat> at some level, the immigration debate, and you just never think it's going to be your child. You know, <clears throat> you just never think it's going to be your kid. And it always is somebody's. And this poor girl, I just can't get over her beautiful smiling face, just trying to work on herself. And so she could help others at the hands of this loser, this absolute derelict. And now what? Great. So he's going to go to prison for the rest of his life, potentially. Maybe now we'll deport. I, c- I couldn't give a shit. I, ho- I, I don't care. I don't care about him anymore. I care about all the others who are out there wanting to do harm to others. And by the way, I don't know whether there was a sexual assault. They haven't released that information. But it, 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 so far, it sounds like it was just a crime of opportunity. That's how the police described it. A, tr- a crime of opportunity. He saw this beautiful girl and he decided to hurt her. It's sick. It's sick. These people come. They don't have our shared values. It's not that we don't have sickos here who are Americans, too, Emily, but we have no idea what this guy's background was, what kind of damage he had. Why did we let him into our country? Why didn't we do more to stop him once we knew he was here illegally? We have zero clue of what we're
1: letting in here next to our young girls and boys. And it's one thing, I mean, in years past, we used to have at least somewhat of a system, you know, go back more than 10 years ago. Uh, but now, not only are we letting people in, uh, but we're once we know who they are, and once we have them on record, we're not deporting them, sometimes because of sanctuary jurisdictions, other times because the system is such a joke. I mean, it's again, like I, any other country is looking at this and just completely laughing at us. And another thing that's worth mentioning is so many of these migrants now are coming across in debt to cartels. That is a fairly new thing within the last five or so years in mass at the level that it's happening now, they have to pay cartels to get across the border. Sometimes they can't afford. And so they go in in debt. And to get out of that debt, they traffic drugs. So a lot of for a lot of parents, uh, the fentanyl issue, is, is So close and personal in the same way that this young woman was murdered. There are so many parents of children uh, who took a, a fentanyl pill that was uh, precursor criminals, chemicals come over from China, mixed by cartels in Mexico, trafficked across the border, sometimes by migrants in debt, other times just by the cartels themselves and mules. And it is wreaking so much tragedy around the country because of political cowardice on behalf of centrist Republicans and the entire Democratic Party party, basically, which is two cowardly to do anything serious and you saw that with the biden the, the border bill that was being debated that would not have done anything serious to crack down on this it did some small things it did not do anything serious that would actually stanch the flow of people coming across the border and if you talk to people coming across the border you will know that I mean it's so obvious um, right now and and so you have a lot of desperate people uh you know, people who have who have been kidnapped and have to get Western Union wires to be released from Cartel custody and then come over across the country and are still in debt. I mean, this is happening every single day to the tune of tens of thousands of people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people a year, millions of people a year in the last couple of years. There's so much desperation. It is going to lead to more crime and it's going to lead to, as you said, Megan, we have plenty of our own problems here. We're not saying that uh, immigrants are all criminals. That's not the case at all. But if any of them are criminals and we know that, Uh, It's outrageous that they're they're in the country. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. No other country would tolerate it. So you've got Eliana, you touched on this. You've got the
0: ideological commitment to an open border on the left. I mean, I, I would love to say it's it's just like the far left. I don't think that's true in this case. I think the left is pretty committed to an open border. They're starting to feel the penalties of those policies. But as a whole, they have this belief that that's what's humane. That's what's right. And Eliana, you, you mentioned uh, the headline, so they have a compliant news media that shares the same sympathies. Um, you pointed out the AP News headline, which was literally, as you said, the killing of a nursing student out for a run highlights the fears of solo female athletes. Talk about burying the lead. <laughs> This—that That is not what this story is about. And secondly, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution tweets, breaking a 26-year-old Athens man has been yeah. charged with murder and the death of a nursing student. Athens man, that, which, I mean, everybody on X just went nuts over. And I just want to say this other thing. As all this happens with the left, the policies, the, the compliant media, we get news. President Biden will travel to Brownsville, Texas, to meet with U.S. Border Patrol agents, local law enforcement and leaders, according, according to a White House official. Okay, sure. That'll that'll do it. That's going to appease people in blue cities and red cities across America who understand perfectly how we got into this situation.
3: The AP article refers to the. Murderer as Athens resident. And. The Atlanta Journal Constitution is Athens Man. And nowhere, reading this article, would you know that this guy was an illegal immigrant. It's all about female runners. Uh, they interview a store associate from the Athens Running Company and the head of women's running clubs. And how do women protect themselves? And really, if there's any question, it would be, well, how do we protect ourselves from violent predators or um, violent illegal immigrants who are not supposed to be in this country in this case. Um but but really the headline on this story is um the dangers of illegal immigration of illegal immigration come home to small college town. Yes. And instead the headline is uh the fears of solo female athletes without a mention of it. It is just astonishing. Astonishing and for uh for those of us in the news industry i think it does highlight the importance of having center right news outlets that are going to frame this in a different way yeah, um, the free beacon and the federalist got the headline right it is
1: go ahead comical Super quickly, the Federalists, we went to Brownsville two years ago. Biden's going there now. We went to Brownsville two years ago and talked to a pastor. Actually, he's from Brownsville, but works across the river in Matamoros in Mexico. And we were in the shelter in Matamoros, which he was saying it was absolutely because migrants know that Joe Biden is going to be more lenient on immigration than Donald Trump. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, And he said that he was begging. He and a group of other people uh, in Mexico were begging uh, the Biden administration and the United States government to tell people seriously not to come, not just to say it, but to mean it and to tell people across all of these countries not to come. So Joe Biden, if he's going to go to Brownsville now, he sure as hell should have done it two years ago, but he didn't. His administration didn't take any of the symbolism serious back then, even because this is purely symb- symbolic. What is he actually going to learn at the border? I don't know if it's going to be like when he went to El Paso, they cleaned the whole place up before he yeah. uh, actually even got there. So it's oh, going to be the same thing as that.
4: It's a Yeah, it's a photo op.
0: Yeah, it's a photo op. Exactly right. He doesn't mean it. And and even if he tries to slap a Band-Aid on these policies over the next 10 months or nine months, whatever it is now, no one's going to believe it. They know on an inherent level who is pro closing the border and who is pro opening it. And he's stuck with that. He is stuck with that. I'm sorry, but this administration has this young woman's blood on their hands. They've done nothing, nothing to help prevent this from happening or more deaths from happening. Emily, you look like you have something you want to add.
1: Well, it's just because they refuse to detain people. They will not do it because, again, Donald Trump got hit for kids in cages, even though Obama had done it. But Biden will not do that because his base will call it inhumane. They don't ideologically have the will to do it. They don't politically have the will to do it. And it's by the law. You have to detain people. We've run out of space. So the bill said, OK, well, the bill from last month said, OK, we can you know, have some people, uh, set some extra detention centers, et cetera. Uh, but if you're still letting them into the country. Uh, then that does not work. If you are not actually processing their asylum claims and the Democratic Party does not have the will to do that. They only have the will to let people into the country and go through these two, three year, four year asylum periods while they disappear into sanctuary jurisdictions. They do not have the will to detain and process asylum claims and to turn people back to do remain in Mexico, the Trump policy that actually changed what was happening at the border. They do not have the will to do it. They will not do it. So it will not stop until the leadership changes.
0: Uh, Just as we go to break, this Bill Maloujian of Fox News reporting this statement that just hit from the Border Patrol Union. Unfortunately, a visit by President Biden three years into his term and after repeatedly stating there's no crisis is too little too late. Whether stating it himself or through White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, Biden has said he's done everything he can to secure the border. If that was the truth, and it wasn't, there would be no point in visiting the border now. But even if he were to put the proper policies in place at this late hour, he would be doing it only to try to save his presidency. And self serving actions when time is winding down should always give Americans pause. Common sense dictates that as a lame duck, he would revert back to his open border policies if reelected. Biden is going to the border now solely to try to save himself. Border security should never be about sp- politics, it should always be about the safety and security of this great nation and the American people. Signed the head of the Border Patrol Union, President. Uh, Brandon Judd, well said, sir. Stand by. We'll be right back. More with the EJs after this quick break. I'm Megan Kelly, host of the Megan Kelly Show on Sirius XM. It's your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations with the most interesting and important political, legal, and cultural figures today. You can catch the Megan Kelly Show on Triumph, a Sirius XM channel featuring lots of hosts you may know and probably love, great people like Dr. Laura, Glenn Nancy Grace, Dave Ramsey, and yours truly, Megan Kelly. You can stream The Megan Kelly Show on SiriusXM at home or anywhere you are. No car required. I do it all the time. I love the SiriusXM app. It has ad-free music coverage of every major sport, comedy, talk, podcast, and more. Subscribe now. Get your first three months for free.
2: Go to SiriusXM.com slash MK show to subscribe and get three months free. That's SiriusXM.com slash MK show and get three months free offer. Details apply.
0: Grand Canyon university, a private Christian university in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, believes in equal opportunity and that the American dream starts with purpose. GCU equips you to serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Change the world for good by putting others before yourself. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's online, on-campus, and hybrid learning environments are designed to help you achieve your unique academic, personal, and professional goals. With over 330 academic programs as of September, GCU meets you where you are and provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Let it flourish. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Okay, we've got to talk about Joe Biden's sex life. I'm sorry, but we've got to do it.
1: (laughs) I don't think we do. (laughs) We're doing it, EJ. <laughs> okay.
0: It's in the news I'm here for we have it. to do it for for no other reason we have to do it for the responses on X when this hit over the weekend. There's a new book coming out called American Woman: The Transformation of the Modern First Lady from Hillary Clinton to Jill Biden by New York Times uh columnist Katie Rogers. And um apparently there's a bunch in here about Joe Biden's feelings about his sex life. According to the book, this is quoting here from the post. Um, president Biden's poll numbers may be cold, but his libido sure is hot. (laughs) He's fond of telling AIDS in the West wing that the key to a successful marriage is good sex. I just threw up a little in my mouth. He, um, apparently told a group of supporters in 2006, I'd rather be at home making love to my wife while my children are asleep. (laughs) Um, since he won the 2020 election, he has tamped down on his public bedroom declarations, but he continues to tell his staff the importance of good sex to a happy marriage, much to his wife's chagrin. They also say that he gushed about the sexual and emotional connection he and his first wife shared. This is to a Washingtonian magazine, the Washingtonian magazine in 1974, talking about how the first wife had the best body of any woman I ever saw. She looks better than a Playboy bunny, doesn't she? I can't even believe it. it goes on and on. And then, he, oh, he goes on to say, um, at first, okay. Hey, first, is this about the first wife or the second wife? I think this is about the first wife still. Yeah. At first she stayed home with the kids while I campaigned, but that didn't work out because I'd come back too tired to talk to her. I might satisfy her in bed, but I didn't have much time for anything else. Oh my God.
1: As uh, I think it was it Dave Marcus tweeted out,
0: they're going to release a sex tape, aren't they?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and if so, you don't like it, you're you're the problem. It's actually going to be beautiful. And yeah, is this is this rehab? Like, is what's happening here? Why again? Why was this I, told?
3: I'm really feeling like every time Biden has. A verbal flub or falls down on the stage and then all the aides come out to tell us like are you serious this guy has way more energy than i do i can't keep up with him he's the youngest 81 year old i've ever seen i just really feel like this is part of that where it's like what do you mean he has more sex than i do he's so young <laughs> i mean yes. he's like you know he's hornier than my 19
0: year old yes like it it feels very well. next next thing you the- know he's gonna be They're going to be like Larsa Pippen. You say you had five times, five times a night sex with Scottie (laughs) Pippen. And now your new boyfriend, same, same. We can barely get any legislating done.
1: (laughs) This is so disgusting. You should, you guys should both be ashamed of yourselves.
0: (laughs) It's not me. It's Joe Biden. I'm just Joe Biden healthy
1: enough for sex. (laughs) That's his (laughs) campaign slogan. Okay.
0: Speaking of sex. Um, (laughs) You don't technically need to have it to conceive a baby via IVF, though the man does have to engage in some self-pleasure. All right. This, for those of you who haven't been through it, (laughs) certain things do have to happen. And, um, that leads me to what's happening in Alabama and this court ruling that is now has like completely upended IVF in Alabama. So we go from something very funny to very serious where, um, this court, basically what happened was Somebody went into an IVF clinic in Alabama. I don't know how the person got in, but they were in the room where they keep the stored frozen embryos, stuck his or her hands into the area where they have the frozen embryos and the test tubes. It's cryogenically preserved. So the person burned their hands on the freezing cold test tube, dropped one, at least three families lost embryos, sued the clinic claiming wrongful death, which is unusual. Normally it would be a negligence suit. We've seen that in the past, but never wrongful death. One with the Alabama Supreme court saying you, you took the life of a minor and that's against the law. And all the IVF clinics now are in a total panic in Alabama, many shutting down entirely saying we cannot guarantee like suddenly we're murderers. If we don't take care of these embryos, which was not what we thought we were doing the business we were in. And now real life women and men are suffering the consequences of this. I give you Megan Cole, who spoke to the New York Times's The Daily podcast about her situation when she was about to have her embryo implanted in a surrogate? She has a blood disorder and therefore cannot carry a baby. It was supposed to happen this past Friday. Take a listen.
4: Our doctor said, "I'm so sorry, but you know it it has to be canceled." Hmm. I instantly broke down in tears. Um, I don't think I've ever cried that hard in my life. I called our surrogate and had to break the news to her. Mm. Um, the person who has been taking hormone medications for the last three weeks. I mean, the only option would be for me to go through an IVF cycle out of state, my third IVF cycle, get those embryos frozen, genetically tested again.
3: The whole process.
4: I mean, redo the whole process, which would cost us another $30,000. One thing that my sister said, you know, is, She's been angry as well, and she said it. It feels like a death in the family. Like we were all excited to have the possibility that a child would be coming into our family, and she said, you know, it, it feels like a death. Do you feel that way? I do, in the sense of it feels like a death of our dream to become parents.
0: This poor woman. I have to tell you, if that if those were my embryos. There is zero chance I would be allowing the clinic to just keep them and tell me we're no longer in the business of doing IVF. Those are your future children. I conceived, and I've told this story before, all three of my children via IVF. I am very pro IVF. I understand the legal rationale behind the court ruling, but the legislature in Alabama needs to act immediately to rectify this gross miscarriage because you cannot be endangering IVF clinics this way. It is not a pro-life position to tell parents desperate to start families who have conceived embryos sitting right there, that they can't have them, that they can't bring them into a uterus so they can actually be born. This is insane. And I think the Alabama legislature and governor actually are poised to do something about it. President Trump has weighed in saying they should uh, even Matt Gates is out there saying this should be reversed, but some hard, hardcore pro-lifers, and I understand their position. I respect their views, but I completely disagree with them. think this is a win. This is a huge win for the pro-life movement because they don't like IVF because it creates embryos, not all of which get used. Eliana, what do you think?
3: I'm with you on this, Megan. I think this is... Um first of all, the stories of the families caught in the gears of this are just heart-wrenching. Um, and secondly, the verdict, I, it's, it is hard. Um, while I understand the views, um, it's hard to see it, um, as purely pro-life, uh, versus pro-choice for me, because of course the people in these IVF clinics, um, you couldn't find people who are more pro-life and pro-family and who are really yearning to start families. So one has to feel for them and not consider, consider them or label them as opposed to the, the pro-life cause. Um, so it's complicated and, and, um, I'm with you in in being supportive of, um, of the use of this technology for people who, um, aren't able to have kids without some help from the technology that's available to us.
0: Can I ask you a question? We're going to, the series show wraps in a minute 40, but we have to continue. Can you just stay for like another 10 minutes just so we can finish this conversation, gals? Sure. Yeah. Okay. They're saying yes, because it's just too important. Like, this is a big one. And um, there was, we had to talk about Biden's sex life, so I didn't get to it. (laughs) I didn't get to it it early enough. (laughs) Um, But it's really deeply disturbing what's happening here, Emily. And I, like, I'm, I'm worried that this is going to start a trend where other women are going to actually lose their babies. That's what's going to happen. Like if this woman can't get access to her
1: embryos, she's going to lose those babies. What are they going to do? Hit the defrost? So I'm somewhere in the middle on this because I think legally there is a lot that needs to be worked out with IVF. And actually, I wonder, I mean, I, I'm actually very curious as, as to the woman who was on the daily, uh, who the the clip that you just played, um, I actually wonder what legal ramifications she has. And I'm eager to see her potentially and people in her position potentially pursue those legal ramifications, because I think there actually is a very important framework to be worked out here. you If I had been her or advising her as a friend, as soon
0: as she found out on Wednesday, I think that's when the ruling came down, things might be in jeopardy. She was supposed to implant the embryo in the surrogate that Friday who, you know, when you go through to be a surrogate, you do, she's right. You have to do like all the progesterone. You have to get the uterus ready because it's the the woman's not actually pregnant. So you got to get the uterus ready for the implantation of the embryo so she can carry it. And um, I would have gone right into court that day with a lawyer Mm -hmm. saying, "I, I uh, I need a temporary restraining order on this clinic from embargoing my embryos away from me. I demand that my embryos be released to me. I waive all claims against the facility for the, you know, negligent transfer or for any wrongful death claims, I guess, just waive what you've been, what you've lost thanks to the ruling, not all claims, but I waive any wrongful death claims against you. Give me my damn embryos right now. Like they cannot hold the embryos from their rightful parents, which is that woman, Megan Cole. So I like, she probably wasn't advised as she doesn't sound like a rich person. She talks about the financial pressure that this put on her family, but that's what you should do. They can't just hold on to your embryos. That's sorry. That's one of the things that's very annoying about the story. Keep going, Emily.
1: No, no, no. I mean, I think that's a hugely important point because the wrongful death suit in and of itself, uh, that is on the other side of the coin, is coming from basically the same position, which is that this is, you know, a a form of life that was created with my unique DNA and my husband or my partner's unique DNA. It cannot be in a position where it is dropped on the floor. And, uh, you know, the, the term wrongful death implies that a life was snuffed out because something was dropped on the floor. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why, you know, IVF has rapidly increased like it, it the technology has gone really quickly uh, really far really quickly and it's wonderful I mean it's it's such a blessing for so many families um, I think there's probably a better way to do it than some places do it and I think the laws just need to be worked out on this and you know I think the judge was kind of in a tough position because the wrongful death law and and what IVF is which is you know a- embryonic development Christopher Hitchens back in 2003 were a really interesting piece on this for Vanity Fair uh where he and he he had some like heterodox uh thoughts on uh you know embryonic development and and abortion and all of that but when you have something that is a fertilized embryo you do have unique dna that was created and so if it goes away what does that mean does that mean death does that mean the end of potential life uh so legally i do think you know hopefully the silver lining here uh, you know it's a tragedy that people are being caught up in this but hopefully the silver lining is that we will work towards a more ethical uh, and just a more helpful legal framework that doesn't lead to people losing fertilized embryos in this way that as she described it, it felt like a death in the family
0: i don't i don't begrudge my 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 deeply pro life friends who feel like the ivf clinics are bad because invariably what happens is the the woman produces x number of eggs gets put in a Petri dish. It gets fertilized with sperm. All of them, all the eggs get fertilized, which is not normal. That's not how a normal pregnancy would take place inside of a body where you only release one egg. I mean, sometimes two or three in extraordinary cases with triplets or twins. Um, You know, you could release whatever, 10 eggs and potentially they could all get fertilized and then you have the leftovers. Um, And I understand why the pro-life, you know. Like true, true hardcore believers, many of them are like this is not okay. But I i guess I'm just. This is where I draw the line. I—I don't—I don't think a fertilized embryo outside of the uterus that's never been in its mother is the same to me as one that's in the mother and growing and has a real shot at viability in life. I just. I don't see it the same. And I will tell you, I mean, Eliana, I've told you this privately and I've told my audience this. Dave Rubin came on and he's, of course, in a gay marriage and therefore there's no, there's no wife in the relationship. And I know people have problems with that too. I, I'm not one of them. Um, we talked about surrogacy. They had to use a surrogate. I, I was able to have my own babies, but I have, and this is a lot of information, but I'll tell you, I have what's called a T-shaped uterus. And what that means is instead of like, like a big uterus, it's mine is kind of small. And it was leading to problems in, in getting pregnant. So we went, you have to have the histriole salpingogram, I think is how you pronounce it, and you have to like get tested. And I didn't think anything was gonna be wrong with me. And there was something, not wrong, but not conducive to pregnancy, not, or getting pregnant. We went to a fertility specialist and he said, don't worry, you can carry a baby. It's just gonna be very hard to conceive one. And that's why we did IVF and we did it for all three of our children. And I thank God every day for that technology. I would not have my three amazing children if it hadn't been for IVF. And I mean, I can't think of a world in which any sane person would look at me and my family and say, nope, they shouldn't be here. The the world would be better if your children were not here. That would be a win for society. Bullshit. 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 It's a very easy argument to win when you're zeroed in on the embryos that are in the petri dish that may or may not. But then you look at the live children who have made it, you know, the millions of children now who have made it because of this technology. And how, how is it pro-life to argue with that, with their existence in this world? I just, I don't, it's very frustrating to me, Eliana, because if this continues, if they don't reverse this, then Megan Cole might not get her embryos. And who knows how many other women who would love to use the same technology I used will wind up in the same position. One footnote to what I just said, we were lucky, we were lucky in that we did not produce extra embryos. And so I didn't have to make the decision about what to do with potential children of mine that I, you know, I mean, look, if it had been one or two more, I probably would have tried to have them, but if it had been 10 more, what do you do in that circumstance? So I'm not blind to the ethical considerations here. And I do consider myself fortunate not to have had that end result.
3: I wish I had a ton to uh, to add Megan, but I sort of share your views. Exactly. As you mentioned, we, we had talked about this and, um, I, I also have a hard time. Um, I'm, I'm more, um, I feel a much stronger opposition to to abortions and to ending uh, the life of a baby um, in the mother's womb than to the the frozen embryo. That's um, I just don't have as, as strong a strong reaction. But I will say um, I am not. Uh, I've never been a fervent um, pro lifer. I'm not a Catholic, and so I think it is just harder for somebody um, maybe of my background to to relate to those views. Um, so. I, I just I, I really do feel for um, for everybody caught up in the gears of this situation. And
0: um, and, and well, very let me ask you this. There's one, one thing you do offered. know a lot about. One thing you do know a lot about is politics. And as you know, the Republicans have been struggling ever since Dobbs with these more moderate voters. And, you know, I mean, even that New York Times Daily podcast was talking about how, well, in the wake of Dobbs, you know. It's just everything's different. Every state can do it what it wants. And this is going to be pinned on yeah. Republicans now. Right. Like Republicans don't want IVF, even though Trump was quick to come out and say, this is insane. I'm against this with IVF should be allowed. Matt Gaetz who's no he's not some light footed liberal, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's not going to matter. This is going to be hung around the Republicans in, a, in an election year
3: it's not going to matter. And I think it's even more troubling when, um, when women like us who are well to the right of of center are seeing things happen where we're like, ah, uh, that's uh, we can't defend that can't can't get behind that. And so that that's what alarms me. But this is, you know, if I were Democrats, I'd be making political ads all over the country around this if I were, um, if I were Republicans, I'd be making ads all about this, um, this murder in Georgia with that young woman's face on it everywhere you turn all of this stuff into politics. But, you know, right after uh, these things happen, um, it is important to remember that these are real people, um, you know, on on the other end of it. And that policy decisions do affect these, uh, you know, very they affect real individuals uh, in these cases. But politically, look, even the six week and 12 week abortion bans were bad for for Republicans, um, just the the cadence of the uh, the environment created post obs Republicans have not been able to talk about well, to grapple with well, and whatever Biden's foibles, abortion as an issue, uh, Democrats were able to um, make sure that outweighed um, whatever was uh, hanging around Biden's neck,
0: and so this is certainly not going to help in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I mean I realize it's Alabama, Emily, but. They got to fix it. it. The latest I heard was, you know, the governor, the Republican governor uh, said she's inclined to fix it and that the legislature appears to have the numbers to fix it. But it's not
1: a lock. <laughs> and if they don't fix it, then what? It's a huge problem for the pro-life movement going forward. And it's one that I'm not sure those of us in the pro-life movement, I mean, I consider myself pretty hardcore pro-life. I consider myself pretty hardcore, honestly, on IVF, even though I think it's a wonderful blessing. There is a way to do it that is perfectly ethical and wonderful. Uh, But I don't think people are prepared to have these conversations about technologies that uh, have advanced to the point where everybody kind of gotten used to them. They're normalized. They've produced incredible results. And this is going forward, like this, after Dobbs, um, and now, after this ruling, this is going to be a question that is posed to every single pro life Republican. Uh, and, and there has to be a message that leads uh, with agreement about how wonderful. These technologies are. Uh, we can have the serious sort of ethical discussions, as you were just mentioning, Megan. Like th- there are some, you know, areas that are that really bring up uh, debate and that really bring up room for having those conversations. But uh, man, if Republican politicians don't understand the gravity of how they have to lead with uh, the the uh, complete support for and uh, gratitude for what these technologies have have brought into people's lives, uh, and are just going to lead with you know, some type of, and I don't know. I mean, this is a, the the pro-life movement has to figure out how to talk about this uh, because it's not just going to be IVF. It's going to be other things down the road. Uh, But this is going to be a huge, huge thing because it's affected so many people's lives because this decision is going to have so many ramifications in Alabama and potentially elsewhere. Again, the silver lining is that we develop a better legal uh, framework for this that has more clarity so that people don't get caught up in the mix. Uh, But if Republican politicians, if pro-lifers are going to talk about this just in terms of, uh, Uh, You know, saying things that that are very alienating to other um, people—that is, if that's what they're going to lead with, this will not just be a political loser; it'll be a moral loser. It'll set the cause back uh, instead of you know coming to the table on some points of consensus and agreement. There is a huge difference between looking at a woman and saying you do
0: not have the right to kill your own child, and saying to her you do not have the right to have your own child. That is just a complete, completely different message, politically, morally, religiously. Take your pick. And the latter's not going to fly. It's not going to fly with Republicans. It's not going to fly with the very group that Trump is trying to win over, as we discussed earlier, in particular, young, moderate women, right? That's who he needs to win. So he took the right position on this. Can before we go, can you just can you expand on what you're saying, Emily? Because it's been a long while. You know, my youngest child is now 10. So I haven't really been following the latest IVF developments, but what is the more, you know, moral, humane way of doing it that you're referring to?
1: So targeted. Yeah. Like, like what you were saying about to minimize situations where people have 10 extra embryos that they have to make decisions on. Um, so and, like just, and-
0: just put the number of eggs in the Petri dish that you're willing to have. Like it's really the eggs that will control the number of children
1: right 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 and then figuring out what these clinics do with extra eggs too um I, I think that's a big 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 legal question as well because now we have people like the woman on the daily caught in the lurch when a court decision comes down so as this stuff sort of uh flip-flops or, or ping-pongs through the legal system you're gonna have people's lives sort of caught in the balance and uh th- there should be some way that there's there's clarity so people aren't in those situations
0: yeah and obviously i'm i think we'd all agree like no medical testing on quote, discarded embryos, uh, all of that. Just uh, maybe we won't all agree, but I, I certainly would never have agreed to that kind of thing. And I don't know. I just, uh, I, my heart goes out to her. I predict she will get her embryos. And honestly, if, if I were one of those moms or dads down there, I'd be sitting outside of that clinic every day with a photo, treating them as hostages, give release my hostage child. That's my baby. You will not tell me I cannot have him or her I, I, I'd be ready to storm that IVF clinic the same way the bad person did in, in the first instance to try to go grab it. Though it's harder to identify when it's an embryo form in, in the little test tube. But I would just look for the loudmouth one, <laughs> the little <laughs> brash one <laughs> swearing <laughs> from the test tube. That's mine. <laughs> It'd be so obvious. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for sticking around Thank doing you, double Maggie. duty. Thanks, guys. Right, see, see you soon. And thanks to all of you for listening would love your thoughts. You can write me, uh, with your thoughts on this debate or any other you've listened to today. Uh, you can follow us on, on the podcast and right there is a great place to leave your comments on the Apple podcast. Cause that actually helps our show too. Or on YouTube, just do it at youtube.com slash Megan Kelly and leave a comment down below. I often go there and I scroll and I hear and uh, read what you all are saying all the best and to be continued. We'll talk tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.